Continuing on in our study of Genesis chapter 1. Now last week we read the first two verses. Let's read them again. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now we talked about the fact that this phrase formless and void is the Hebrew phrase tohu vabohu, literally a formless void, a mess, a catastrophe of sorts, a dark, desolate thing. We talked about how God does not create a dark, desolate thing. Isaiah said that God did not create the world this way, and so the only possible explanation for this is that something happened. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but something happened that made it formless and void. Remember that God said, My word which proceeds from my mouth does not return to me empty. It does not come back void. And so we now have this dark formless thing, and the question is, what did God do? What was his next step? And that's where we pick up in verse 3. It tells us, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. I love this. In the Hebrew, literally, he says, light be, and light was. Light began. God has always been about light. He's always been about light. John tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Men, however, have not always been about light. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now listen to that. We avoid the light when we don't want our deeds to be exposed. But if we're walking in the light, John says later, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And in that fellowship, there's transparency, there's openness, there's realness, because the light exposes everything and we have nothing to hide. Well, Jesus goes on in John chapter 3, verse 21, and says that he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested, check this out, as having been wrought in God. You see, the good things, the righteous things, the things that are of the light, are always wrought in God, made in God, created, if you will, by God. Ultimately, everything has to come to light, and darkness will be exposed. Well, verse 4, it tells us that God said, he said, light be in verse 3, and then verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So God now divides up the light. That word separated literally means to divide more great scientific implications here. Because at the time of the writing, Moses could not have known, except by the Holy Spirit, that light could even be divided. We know now that there's a division of light in the spectrum of light. We know there's light that can't even be seen on either end of the spectrum. There's the ultraviolet light, ultraviolet rays on one end of the spectrum, and on the other end of the spectrum there's infrared light. And we can't see either of those. But we do know, in fact, that there are three divisions of light. There's light, color, and sound. And these divisions within the spectrum can be based on vibrations of different frequencies. If you slow the frequencies down, slow down the vibrations, you actually hear sound. If you speed them up, you see colors. And that's how light is divided. And now notice the Hebrew phrasing of the first day, verse 5, Genesis chapter 1. God called the light day, 
and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Evening and morning, one day. This is crucial to our understanding of both the timing and the process of creation. There was evening and morning, one day. The Hebrew reckoning of a day always moves, interestingly, from darkness to light. It always moves from evening to morning. That's how even Jewish people today continue to reckon their calendars, to reckon their days by evening to morning. The Sabbath begins in the evening and ends the next day. You see, evening to morning is a Jewish way of thinking. And while this is the account of creation, it's also a marvelous picture of what happens to a person's life when they come to Jesus. Think about that. We move from evening to morning. We move from darkness to light. Now, what about this one-day idea? Can we fit the idea of evolution into these days in the Bible? Can we do that? Now, now people have been tempted to, and again, that's, in my opinion, it's what I call Christian backpedaling. It's where we, we don't take the Word of God at its face value. We say, well, you know, what if evolution is true? And if evolution is true, then I've got to be able to defend my position as a believer. So maybe each one of these days wasn't a literal day at all. Maybe each day of creation was just intended to kind of be a metaphorical picture of a day and didn't actually happen in one day. Maybe day one was a billion years. Day two, several thousand. Day three, another couple billion years. I mean, if, if evolution is correct, that the earth is 4.7 billion years old, we've got to fit this all together, don't we? And my question is, do we? Can we, as the children's song goes, stand alone on the Word of God? The B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. You see, we need to understand that the Bible always beats science to the punch. And where the Bible and, and science tend to be different than each other, trust me in this, trust God's word in this, the Bible is always proved right. We talked about that last week. But here in, in the word day, it's very important for us to understand, I don't believe we can fit the idea of evolution into these six days of creation. First of all, the Hebrew word for day is the word yom. It's the word used here, Yom. October 5th this year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's a Hebrew word. It's a very good word for day. But understand that there are several, several Hebrew words for time or for indefinite periods of time that could have been used. But Moses, in writing these words, chose the word Yom, as in day. Now that word yom is used 2,291 times in the Old Testament and almost always means a literal solar day. We're talking 24 hours. When it's modified by a numeral, as in one day, or when it's modified by an ordinal, as in the second or third day, it always, without question, always refers to a literal day. Furthermore, when it's modified by the Hebrew phrase evening and morning, it always refers again to a literal solar day. And this happens 44 more times in the Old Testament. The word day is very specific and I believe was chosen very specifically. Moses was intentional. He wanted us to know, God wanted us to know that the earth was in fact created in six days. But if you still can't quite put a finger on six literal days of creation, why don't you let God put his finger on it for you? What does God say about this? For it's exactly what God did when he carved the Ten Commandments into stone. Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 tells us the following. The Lord said, Remember the Sabbath day, Yom. 
to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. On down in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 20, God says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Folks, God says, remember the seventh day at the end of every six. Why? Because the literal creation week is God's standard for our little literal week. John Morris, in his scientific book, The Young Earth, an excellent book, scholarly work if you want to look into it, tells us, he says, quote, if words mean anything, and if God can write clearly, then creation occurred in six solar days, just like our days. So, you see, there was evening and morning one day. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so, check this out, God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. You see what's going on here? The Bible tells us that God separated water from water by an expanse not called land, not a mass of dirt, but by an expanse called heaven. And this heaven refers specifically to the atmosphere, to space. So originally, the earth was likely a great big greenhouse. Water above the atmosphere, held there by the earth's electromagnetic pole, and water below the atmosphere, the oceans, the seas, all spread out on planet earth. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a water canopy. A water canopy. That literally, the Bible indicates the world was surrounded by this canopy of water, this protective shielding against the sun's harmful rays, against harmful things that might come from outer space, this protective shielding all the way around planet Earth. Why is this significant? Because a water canopy would provide perfect protection for Earth. It would have perfectly regulated the climate around the entire globe, which means in Adam's day and all the way up to the flood, there'd be no violent storms. There would only be a sweet, balmy climate everywhere on planet Earth. Furthermore, cosmic radiation would be blocked and diminished in a drastically greater way than experienced among us today. By the way, did you know aging is an abnormality in nature? And it has to do with cosmic radiation, with these little radiating particles called neutrinos. These things, man, they're powerful. You might think that you are not being hit by cosmic radiation, by literally sun radiation from the sun, as long as you're in the shade or it's nighttime. Incorrect. These little neutrinos go straight through the earth itself and come right up through the earth into our bodies, which means day or night we are constantly being bombarded by these little suckers coming through the earth and they cause decay and cellular mutation to occur, bringing about death. Well, the water canopy would have blocked these in an incredible way. It's interesting that it's Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, where God finally limits man's lifespan to 120 years. How does he do it? The Lord punches holes in the water canopy, the water floods the earth, and not only was the earth itself flooded, but the protection around planet earth was removed. And now, the best we can do is around 100 to 120 years years. Could it be that the flood was the result of bursting the water canopy? Absolutely. I believe it was. 
For after the flood, man's longevity dropped from eight to 900 years down to about 100 years. The water canopy, by the way, also explains some, some interesting scientific discoveries to us. It explains why remnants of tropical life and vegetation fossilize in places like Antarctica or the Arctic Circle. Unbelievable. It also explains why woolly mammoths found frozen in Siberia have remains of tropical plants in their digestive tracts. And it would explain forests that once existed at the South Pole, which we know were there because of charcoal deposits discovered under 200 feet of ice. Did I mention that science agrees with scripture? That what the Bible tells us is so, that you can stand on the word of God. Well, let's go on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. It's interesting the writer uses the phrase seas, plural, when at this time, Moses would have been aware of really only one sea. Hmm. Read on. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after them, or after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. Get used to that phrase, after their kind. You're going to hear it a lot. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Three days. Three days in which God did something amazing. The first half of creation. Do you know what he did in the first three days? He created a home for everything else that he would create. A place for the rest of creation to inhabit. On day one, he created a home for what would be the sun, the moon and the stars. On day two, he created a home for the creatures of the water and the air. And on day three, he created a home for the land animals and man. In other words, on day two, he created stuff, a home for day four. On day, or sorry, day one, he created a home for day four. On day two, he created a home for day five. And on day three, he created a home for what he would create on day six. Something else to notice, though. Day three saw the first fruits of earth. Fruit trees growing and yielding fruit according to their kind, after their kind. Fruit bearing the seeds within them. What else happened? on a third day. Think about it. Jesus, the first fruits from among the dead, rose on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 tells us, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So in creation, we see the creation of the first fruits on the third day, and it was on the third day that Jesus rose, the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. Now, wait a minute, Rick. You might say, uh, what about Jairus' daughter, that synagogue leader's daughter? Didn't she, wasn't she raised from the dead? Or Lazarus, wasn't he raised from the dead? Don't we even see in some Old Testament examples people raised from the dead? We do. But we've never seen an example of anybody who's been raised from the dead who stayed alive. You know what's tragic? Lazarus had a second funeral. He died a second time. Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader's daughter, died a second time. For those who were, the, the widow's son, Jesus raised a widow's son in the town of Nain and gave him back to his mother. But you know what? He died again. Tragic. But Jesus rose as the first fruits, Paul says, of those who are asleep, never again to die. The first fruits 
on the third day. Man, the consistency and the intricacy of Scripture absolutely astounds me. Let's read on. Verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Remember, God is all about light. And it was so. Verse 16. God made the two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, that would be the sun. And the lesser light to govern the night, that would be the moon. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Why did God create the universe? Couldn't God have just created planet earth, put a little canopy of lights around it and let that be it? Why the entire universe? People have said, isn't that just a big waste of space? I believe the answer is found in the fact that the Creator created curious creatures. It's how He made us. He made us like Him. We have a creative bent. We have imaginations. We have a desire to discover. Look at it this way. J. Vernon McGee said, God hides diamonds way down in the earth. And God also puts treasures down where man has to dig for them. And I think the same thing is true about knowledge. I think it's true about the study of the Word of God. God wants us to go into the laboratory, to use the test tube and the microscope. Folks, I believe God wants us to dig into His Word because that's where we find the treasures, the diamonds hidden deep down. If we take the time to read and study the Word of God, we are, we will be amazed by the things which we see. Things, for example, like in Genesis chapter 5, flip over there. Genesis chapter 5, we have basically a lineage, the descendants of Adam. But if you walk through the lineage and take Adam's name, and then Seth, and then Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and finally Noah, and you take the meaning of their names and write it out as a sentence, you get a picture of the gospel. It's amazing. Listen to this. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means subject to death. Cainan or Kenan means, means sorrowful. Mahalalel means from the presence of God. Jared, one comes down. Enoch means dedicated. Methuselah, dying, he shall send Lamech to the poor and lowly. And Noah means rest or comfort. It's amazing. Man appointed, subject to death. And sorrowful. But from the presence of God, one comes down who is dedicated. And dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly rest or comfort. Folks, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we find it embedded in the words, in the lineage, in the genealogy, the descendants of Adam in Genesis chapter 5. It's one of those nuggets, those treasures that J. Vernon McGee talked about that are embedded deep in Scripture. But going back to the created universe, this is why God made the universe as he did. Because we're curious creatures. We want to know. We want to search and discover and find. And God made a world, made a universe that is so vast, so amazing, that we can't possibly sound its depths or chart its skies to the fullest. But we're going to sure try because we are curious creatures and God created us to be curious. The universe is God's generous answer. 
to our curiosity. Look at verse 20. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, and in the open expanse of the heavens. Verse 21. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind. And every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the creatures, or made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now listen, I mentioned before that the, generous, the, the Genesis account deals several blows to the idea of theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. It, it's that, trying, it's that, <laughs> that dysfunctional marriage, basically, between evolutionary thought and theistic thought, and godly thought. It's trying to squish them together so that everybody can be happy, and you just can't do it. Theistic evolution is the belief that each day of creation may have been thousands or billions of years. It's the belief that God basically got everything started, but then flicked it with his finger and sent it rolling along its way, and then the process is everything grew by evolution. And it's just not so. It's just not so. This passage that we just read truly deals a death blow to the idea of a God-initiated evolutionary process. Again, the Hebrew language here is absolutely clear. Look at verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. This phrase, after their kind, is used six times in six verses right here where God clears up any questions. You see, there can be changes within a species, but no jumps from one species to another species. Animals stay within their own specified categories. We actually have a scientific word for that. It's the word phylum. Phylum means a direct line of descent within a group. In other words, you can't get a horse from a cow, or a cow from a dog, or a dog from a cat, or a cat from a rat. You can't do it. And you certainly can't get a man from an ape. In all the categorizations of the species, doesn't anyone wonder why we've never seen a transmutation in the fossil record, and Darwin himself said, if my theory is correct, the fossil record will bear it out. It will become known, proven. We will find transmutations in the fossil record, but we haven't. There's not a single example of one animal crossing over to become another species. No in-between. No, as scientists say, no missing link. Animals become extinct. Entire phylum will, will die out, but they never seem to be able to make the jump. And evolution says that before an animal system dies out, it, it jumps, it evolves to something else. But we have no evidence of that whatsoever. Well, don't you just need time? I mean, that's what we need for evolution, is time. Well, let's think about time. You're right in, in thinking that evolution requires time. But scientists themselves have shown some real problems with the whole idea of giving time for evolution to happen.
And that's truly what evolution rests on. If, if there's enough time, then anything can happen. If there's enough time, then any species can flip over to another, or, or things can begin to evolve and create and become something, if there's enough time. Well, scientists have bred fruit flies. You know fruit flies, those annoying little buggers that, that show up in your homes. Scientists have bred millions upon millions upon millions of generations of fruit flies because you can do that. They breed so quickly. And once scientists figured this out, they thought, well, this is great. We'll just breed millions upon millions of generations of fruit flies and hope that we find an evolutionary transmutation. You know what's interesting? Never once has a fruit fly become a, a butterfly or a honeybee or some other kind of insect. They have only continued to breed fruit flies, even with millions upon millions upon millions of generations that have been bred, never once has a single fruit fly made the leap to becoming a bee. One more problem with the time needed for evolution, the sun is losing its mass. Evolutionists estimate, as I said before, the world to be around 4.7 billion years old. Here's the problem with that. It is factually known that the sun loses 1,200,000 tons of mass per second. Per second. Now, if you added each of these lost tons of mass per second, going back 4.7 billion years, the sun would be so hot and massive, our galaxy would be an oven. Everything would be fried. If you just went back a few thousand years, you'd get a cooker that nothing could exist in. Another example is the electromagnetic shield around the Earth. The electromagnetic shield is losing its strength as well. It's that, it's that shield that, that holds the Earth in place, that, that, that creates and causes um, the different natural processes to occur on the Earth. Waves and tides and all that. And the electromagnetic shield itself is wearing down. And it's said that if you went back just 20 to 50,000 years and added on to the electromagnetic shield that which it is losing, you end up again just 20, 20 or so, 20 some odd thousand years back, the Earth would be at an average temperature of 200 degrees and nothing could survive. Well, what about Niagara Falls? The evolutionist says you just need time for evolution to be proven true, right? Did you know that Niagara Falls is eroding at the rate of 4 to 5 feet per year? Now listen to this. The falls are only 7 miles from Lake Ontario. That's 37,000 feet. Now at a constant rate of erosion, this is not accounting for possible floods or geologic disasters, but simple division shows that the falls would be less than 9,000 years old. Less than 9,000 years old. And if there were more water in the past, say by maybe a massive flood, the erosion would be faster and greater. But here's the point. Every second of time is one more nail in the coffin of a dead theory. I'm sorry, but evolution does not pass muster. God, knowing the argument of our day, in the very beginning had things written down this way. He said animals would grow after their kind. He locked the animal phylum into place from the beginning. Now, God is about to do something here. As we get into verse 26, he is about to borrow again. Not borrow. He's not going to take something and make something else. He is going to borrow. It's that Hebrew word to create something out of nothing. Listen to verse 26. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created, Bara. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, some would look at this verse 26, let us make man in our image, and they view it just simply as a majestic we. You know, as in the Queen of England saying, let us have tea. But in this verse, we see the first mention of the plurality, the trinity of God. Let us make man in our image. But the word that we see it truly is when it says, then God said. For the word God here is Elohim. In the Hebrew language, there are three ways to say God. There's the singular version of the word, which is El. Then there's the dual version of the word, which is Elah. And then you get to the plural version of the word, which indicates three or more. And the word is Elohim. God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image. God, Elohim, the plural form of, of God. He is Father. As we saw in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. He is Spirit. In Genesis 1-2, we see that in the beginning, that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And He is Son. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things that have been created have been created through Him and by Him. See, folks, Father, Son, and Spirit are right here. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, is the Trinity. And you know what's amazing? When the Bible says, when God says, Let us make man in our image, we are made in the image of God. God modeled humankind after the Trinity. It's not from the goo to the zoo to you. It's from the Trinity to you and me. Genesis, now Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is the Shema, that, that famous saying, that most important saying among people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that word one, by the way, is also the plural form of the word. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in that we hear the trinity of man, body, with all your might, the, the physical part of man, heart, the seed of the mind and the emotions, and spirit, that which is our eternal nature. Truly, we are made in the image of God. Verse 28, God bless them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Before the fall, man was given a special assignment. He was handed the title deed to planet earth. He was given the responsibility to subdue it. It's an amazing thing, and we see it right here where God determines to hand over authority of earth to man. But I've got to ask a question here, and it's a tough question to answer. What was it that needed subduing? What needed subduing? God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, why, why did, what needed subduing? Hold that thought for a minute and listen to this, verse 29. God went on to say, Behold, 
I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. You may have heard recently in the news, Antoine Yates, a New York man, had in his New York City apartment a 400-pound tiger and a 7-foot alligator. When asked why he did it, he said, I was trying to create Eden in my apartment, although the tiger turned on him and bit him and sent him to the hospital mauled. Folks, listen, in God's perfect world, there were no carnivores. Meat was not sanctioned by God for eating until after the flood. As we see right here, God gives every green plant for food. Isaiah tells us when you look ahead to that time called the millennium, when the world is restored to this kind of pre-fall, pristine state, he says the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 10. Verse 7, he says, also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the, like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? Jesus who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Man, in the words of Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. Wow. Now go back to verse 28. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, he said. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. Subdue and rule. Folks, that word rule is rada. In Hebrew, it literally means to prevail against. The word subdue is kavash. Literally in Hebrew, to subjugate or to conquer. And in these verses, God is handing man the title deed of planet Earth. And he's saying, I want you to subdue Earth. I want you to own it. But we go back to our question, what needed subduing? If the animals were all non-carnivores, if they were all herbivores, veggie animals eating and the earth was perfect and everything pristine, what was it that man had to subdue? There weren't even yet weeds growing on the earth. We don't see that until chapter 3. So what needed subduing? Well, let's ask another question. Who else was vying for ownership and authority of planet earth? You know the answer. Satan. As we'll see in chapter 3, man handed this authority over to Satan. And what was the result? Flip in your Bibles to Revelation, chapter 5, and verse 1. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, we're at the end of all things. In fact, this has not yet happened. But John, caught up in a vision of what would happen at the end, now stands before the throne room of heaven. And this is what he sees. It tells us, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Folks, that book, that scroll, literally, was a title deed. This is what happened. For, for Jewish people, they would take a scroll and they would write what was 
the, the actual mortgage on the inside. Then they'd roll it up, and on the outside of the scroll, they would write what was owed. Then they would seal it with seven seals. And the person had seven years with which to reclaim his property if he could do it. And in the beginning of Revelation 5, verse 1, that's exactly what we see. A book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Then John said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Folks, it's a title deed. The title deed to earth. John says in Revelation 5 verse 4 that I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. But when was the title deed given to man? God gave it to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 as we just saw. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over. I am putting you in charge. I am handing you the title deed. You are going to subjugate, to conquer, to prevail against Against what? Against Satan. Folks, the book, Earth's title deed, is currently held in foreclosure. And John was weeping because no one was worthy to redeem it except one, Jesus himself. But back to our question, what was it that needed subduing? Well, Satan, evil, wrong, needed subduing. How does man go about subduing evil in the earth? Well, it's very simple. By being fruitful and multiplying. But I am convinced personally that this is much more than physical procreation. This is not just about making babies to fill the earth. God is always more interested in spirit than in flesh. Remember Jesus said, the time is coming and has now come that those who worship the Father must do so in spirit and in truth. And so from a spiritual sense... There is something to fruitfulness that we need to grab a hold of. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now flipping your Bibles back to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and listen to Peter's version of this same thing in verse 4 he says by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust now listen now for this for this very reason Peter says applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now, Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be fruitful and multiply. What are you saying, Rick? Just this. We will either subdue the enemy by living in the Spirit fruitfully, or we will be subdued by the enemy by living in the flesh unfruitfully. Back to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Are you sure he did it in six days? <laughs> Absolutely. Back to the key word, bara. God creating something out of nothing. Folks, if God can create something from nothing, do you think he can do it in six days? Let me give you a personal note. We're about to start a new church here. We're about to, to do a new thing. God is doing an amazing new thing here on North Whidbey Island. But I recognize that I don't have what it takes to plant and grow a church. If I sit in my flesh long enough, and occasionally I do, it scares me to death. What am I doing? Our house is sold. We have nowhere to live. We're moving to North Whidbey, assuming we'll find a place. We're starting a church. How are we going to make it happen? I don't know. And if I try to work it out, it worries me. It stresses me. But if I trust in the same spirit that moved over the surface of the deep, the same Spirit of God that created something out of nothing. The same Spirit, as Paul tells us, who raised Christ from the dead. Then I realized something wonderful. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, I realize God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. For you see, in the creation story, Genesis chapter 1, we experience the love, the wisdom, the grace, and yes, the power of God. And don't forget for a moment, that it is the same God who is at work in your life, who is at work in my life. And He wants to do a wonderful thing in us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You will create a new thing here. That the Bridge Christian Fellowship will grow, it will be fruitful, and it will multiply for the sake of Your Kingdom. That you will create literally something out of nothing. There's nothing here on North Whidbey, but you can make it happen. We trust you for this. We call on you for this. We ask, Father, that this happen to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.